Hello and welcome along to the Formation Podcast, back again with another episode as Euro 2020 edges ever closer and we are getting ready for the Euros at the Formation. Um, if you're watching on YouTube, you, you might already be able to see, I, I don't know if the other guys have done anything, but I wanted to talk about this in the intro anyway. In this corner here, for anyone just listening on Spotify, I've got a new microphone. Um, thanks for grandparents, Aidy and Kath from Cornwall, for getting that as a little early birthday present. Thank you very much. I know you'll be listening or watching. Um, then we've got the Euro wall chart in the background as well. Um, and a Wes Houlihan picture, just for, just for good measure, just for good luck, really. Um, but the Euros is getting closer. Um, this episode, as you probably will have seen from the title, isn't going to be specifically about the Euros because we've got a lot more of those to come in the coming weeks. This week, we want to kind of look back on last weekend's action and kind of round off the club season. But before we do that, um, we wanted to speak about England because things have progressed quite significantly since last week when we spoke about the provisional squad. We've now had the new squad and most recently England have had their first pre-tournament friendly against Austria. They won 1-0 last night. So while I introduced the guys, as always, I thought we'll have a chat about that. Sam, I know we all watched it last night. What did you think about what you saw? Um, didn't blow me away, to be honest. It was a typical uh, friendly warm-up, whatever you want to call it, performance, really. But I guess we can't read too much into it, even though the tournament is very close now, because obviously we had a few key players missing and a lot of players that played aren't actually going to be in the squad as we've learned recently. So, yeah, it's good to get the win, I guess, get get minutes in the legs as a team, but not the greatest performance. Yeah, I think it's hard to disagree with that, Devon. As I said there, things have progressed in terms of the, uh, the squad that Gareth Southgate has now got available to him. But for these two friendlies, he's kept the players who aren't even going to make it on. He played Jesse Lingard last night, but... Did any of those players who aren't going to go actually stand out to you and make you think he needs to be at the tournament or not? Not really. I think it was a sluggish performance overall. I think the only three players that sort of stood out were, and from the actual squad, Jude Bellingham, fantastic. Grealish looked back to his best and, and Pickford um, looked quite assured on the ball, which is you know something that we've not been accustomed to recently. But uh, out of the players in there, I don't think none of them... Stuck a claim really. Um, even you know we've said it in the past about James Ward-Prowse. Um, if anything, it looked like on set piece duty we lacked a little bit. We weren't beating the first man. Free kicks were a little bit dull and deft. And I think if anyone was to, obviously the injury to Trent, depending on how bad is, is that out of that seven, I think JWP to Harry's delight would probably be like the favoured pick to come back in. Yeah, and you've teed it up nicely there to move on to Harry. Um, and we know Harry was a, understandably a huge advocate for Ward Prowse being in the squad last week. He was left out. But Harry, you, you must now be eyeing that up and thinking, I'm going to get that England shirt and get his name on the back. <laughs> Honestly, I, I don't look at prices when there's a Saints player and an England shirt combined. The, the, the England kit looks really nice and it looks even better with Warprouse on the back. But yeah, there's definitely an opportunity. I mean, 
we I never like seeing injuries, especially to a player as talented as Trent Alexander-Arnold. But if there's a space to be made in, I, we've already got three right backs. We don't need to replace another defender, or at least I don't think that another defender needs to come in. And because we're a bit light on the midfield front, and you know Henderson might not be fit past the group stage, we, we never know. You might as well just chuck another one in there, especially like Devon said, looking at the set pieces yesterday. It really wasn't it. It wasn't brilliant. Let's be honest. And if Jack Grealish is going to win free kick after free kick outside the box you want to make the most of that and if, if anything else if they what normally happens at Southampton I don't want to veer it off but I'm making a circle round to the point at Southampton we get less and less free kicks because people don't want to face those whereas now with England you've either got to foul Jack Grealish and have a free kick or you've just got to let him go past because Jack Grealish was getting kicked to pieces yesterday because they were like do you know what if, if England get a free kick, it's, it might not lead to anything. Whereas if War Prowse is on the pitch, even though he's not a dedicated starter, like he didn't get in the 26. So him being a starter definitely isn't on Gareth's agenda, it seems like. There's a definite chance that we can make more of those opportunities. So I think it'd be a fantastic chance for England and War Prowse to just combine and see what happens in the Euros. Yeah, I, I'd agree. I think he's been pretty strong on all of his previous friendly appearances anyways, put in a good shift. Um, and you mentioned Jack Grealish there as well. And I think there were some doubts raised over him as he came off the pitch last night and was had ice applied to his shins. But to be honest, I, I don't think we should worry so much about Grealish because I think that sort of thing happens to him every single week. He gets kicked all over the place. And, you know, it, it sounds strange to say, but he's, he's used to being kicked and getting hurt now. So I think he'll be fine. Um, I believe we won't know about Ward Prowse until probably around this time next week when that second friendly is played and they decide if they're going to make any switches. Anyway, as we said earlier on, we're not going to focus too much on that this week because we want to look back at several, um, several big matches from last weekend, which rounded off the league season. Um, we're going to start off with probably the biggest of them all. Well, arguably the biggest of them all, the Champions League final. Um, it was, of course, between two English teams this year, as it was in 2019, Manchester City and Chelsea. It was billed as kind of Manchester City's biggest game, maybe of all time. Pep Guardiola, maybe his biggest game as well. Um, and ultimately, Manchester City came out second best. Chelsea 1-0 winners. Didier Drogba was the hero for them in 2012 in the Champions League final. This time it was Kai Havertz. Um, some achievement for Thomas Tuchel and his players. And Devin, you'd have to say it was fully deserved on the night too, wasn't it? Yeah, as much as people have talked about it being Pep Guardiola's cock-up and you know him overthinking it, you've got to give credit to Chelsea. Because, obviously, with City not going with a DM, they'd have obviously had to change in that first 15 minutes of any tactic they had to cater for that. And, obviously, but the, the, the individual performances as well. Chelsea is a unit, defended like a block. They were fluid in possession, you know, and uh, in, well, not in just in possession, when uh, Man City were in possession, you saw the likes of Kante moving forward, then Jorginho would fill in for him. And if Aspi came out, someone would step back. Um, and it was like they defended as a seven to counteract, uh, counteract City's five going forward. You can see what they were trying to do. They were trying to overload some areas and it didn't work. But, you know, the likes of uh, Reese James making seven tackles, uh, which is four more than the next best. You've got 
um, Mason Mount taking responsibility for that attacking side and and even like Timo Werner. As much as people go on about Timo Werner's misses, you've got to you've got to think about his movement and everything else he adds because it's unbelievable. And the way that he took the defender away, uh, Walker and Diaz for Havertz just to come and nip inside Zinchenko on the goal, um, absolutely brilliant. So, I mean, <laughs> it's a but... perfect master plan. And I don't think. As soon as City lost De Bruyne as well, they just Chelsea completely nullified him. Bernard really frustrates me sometimes because, like you say, he always gets into those good positions. Like he always manages to get there, but it's just always the end product that fails him. And there was a couple more in that game, obviously. But yeah, like you say, Devin, it's a, a brilliant performance from Tuchel's Chelsea. That's three out of three now for Tuchel against Pep, and it also. That Chelsea performance reminds me of Chelsea under Mourinho almost the way they nullified City after, especially after the Havertz goal. I don't think there was a shot on target either way. So, and obviously, the performance, the individual performance that everyone was talking about after the game, Zingolo Kante, who just had one of those games where it felt like he was everywhere, most duels, most ball recoveries. And I think the best stats come from that was that he won four aerial duels, even though he's the smallest player on the pitch, which is just. I don't know that's whether to praise Kante or to say to the City players, what are you playing at then? A player like Kante win four aerial duels. But yeah, Kante in particular and the English players like Devin mentioned, Reese James, Mason Mount, what a pass for Havertz goal. That was just brilliant. Hopefully we see some more of that in the summer. Yeah, I think it's hard not to love and go low Kante as a neutral fan, isn't it? His, his smile every time they, they win a game is always good to see. Um and Tuchel, you have to say, as as we've kind of touched on there, nullifying City and all of their attacking threats, um, the defensive solidity that he has instilled in Chelsea since coming in has been remarkable, really. Chelsea's Edouard Mendy, who, of course, came in at the start of the year, he's kept nine clean sheets in 12 Champions League games this year. No keeper has kept more in a single campaign. Um, and I think that's Mendy's debut campaign in this competition as well. So, Harry speaks volumes, doesn't it? I think it speaks volumes in two ways. I mean, look at Kepa Rizbalaga. He wasn't impressive at all. They've put Mendy in, who, like you said, is relatively inexperienced. And what a story that is, by the way. I don't know. I can't remember which website posted it. But if you just type in Mendy story, I imagine it was the Daily Mail or the Telegraph or something like that. I'm pretty sure it was the Mail. Read that story because it's absolutely unbelievable. Is from unemployment to now a Champions League final winner. But I think the defence has got confidence. I think now they've got a... I think it's harsh to call him a competent manager compared to Frank Lampard's, but a more competent and well-rounded manager. Look, Rudiger wasn't playing. He was. He had another phenomenal performance, even if he did maybe accidentally brutalise Kevin De Bruyne, which definitely nullified the Manchester City attack to a certain extent. Christensen, who, who looked almost lost under Lampard, just comes in easily for Thiago Silva, you wouldn't even notice there was a difference, him coming in, completely shoring up that defence. And like you say, Rhys James, I didn't have him in my England squad about a week ago. I look very silly now because that was an absolutely unbelievable performance. I know Sterling's not been on the best... Sterling, didn't he? 100%. Yeah. He's completely silent Sterling. I know Sterling's not been on the best form, but he's still a world-class winner on his day. And yeah, keeping a clean sheet against Manchester City certainly isn't easy, but... You know, if you let Chelsea have that sort of chance, especially of the team selection, I know Devon said that, you know, they have to change things, which definitely makes it even more impressive. But yeah, Chelsea made the most of what was what was a good Champions League final. 
Before we move on to kind of touch on what this means for Man City going forward then, Devon, um, when Tuchel arrived earlier this year, I think if you'd said that Chelsea are going to go on to win the Champions League, I, I don't think anyone would have believed it. So surely this achievement, if, if he wasn't already up there already, surely it ranks him among the top elite managers in the world. No? Uh, definitely. I think he's... I, I said it um, when he came in. I said I was a fan of him from when he were at Dortmund. I didn't really see anything at PSG which were particularly impressive because obviously they win, apart from three occasions in the last what, 10 years, they've, they've won it, uh, won their league. So um, I think he's took some examples from the Champions League final last year and seeing how Bayern Munich completely over, they, they got their pockets, they the dominated possession, it were a little bit like this. And I think he took lessons from there and put implemented it into his Chelsea side this time. But going back to, even though it's been a couple of months uh, with our <laughs> with our schedule and stuff like that, but a couple of episodes ago, I think we were talking about, I think, did Harry, Harry said that Chelsea were going to be a very a dark horse going into the semi-finals. I think I'm surprised he's not mentioned it yet. Because <laughs> um, that would have been something that I instantly would have said if it was me. Um, but um, I think when we we at that point we said we've seen what Chelsea have done. They've showed up that defence. They've got them playing confident, and eventually we'll see the uh, attacking impetus. And now I think next season we'll see them actually flourish. Like of Werner will get even more goal uh, involvements. Hopefully more his name on a score sheet rather than an assist and Havertz as well could develop into one of the best centre-forwards in not just in England, but the world. Yeah, and Chelsea are expected to offer Tuchel a new deal in the summer because he only signed an 18-month one when he joined. Um, and I've seen suggestions as well that they're going to spend big again. Uh, it's not a surprise, I know, but there's been links to Kane and I think to Haaland as well. I suppose every big club in Europe has been linked with those players. But even so, Sam, if you were a Man City fan at this point, would you view Chelsea as your closest challengers for next season's Premier League title? Or is it more open than that? Because you've got Man United getting closer as well. How would you view that? It's difficult, but you have to look at, you know, when they've come up against Chelsea and the Tuchel and Tuchel's had Guardiola's number every time. It was obviously, I think City fans would be scratching their heads a little bit at the big gamble that Guardiola made before the game, not selecting either Rodri or Fernandinho and going with, De Bruyne and Gundogan in the middle. I mean, they they seemed like they were a bit confused as to what their roles were during the game. It sort of muddled with their game plan a little bit. I would just, you know, if it's not broke, don't fix it. I thought Guardiola of all people would know that. So, you know, you've got to look at Chelsea and they've just been brilliant this season under Tuchel and they've they've had City's number every time. So you have to definitely look at them as a as a title challenger next season with the the size of the pocket that Roman Abramovich has got. I don't know if it was clear to anyone else, but it felt like Pep Guardiola were in bed the night previous going, like still trying to think what he wanted to do. And he kind of woke up, had a little, you know, had his frosties, maybe a little sugar on there to get him, you know, ready for the game. And then thought, what about if we go with no DM? And it kind of felt like the whole team kind of was still surprised, like Sam said, and, and halfway through. So I think, the, the two games previous with Tuchel, I think, has really made Pep's brain just fizz out and thinking of every... Because that, that Chelsea side, no matter how much um, you try and break them down, that back 
uh, five is is definitely not one that you can easily do. It's got to be you know very tactical or looker, and Pep just overthought it. He's he's the master of finals as well. This is only the second time he's lost a cup final in his career. The last one was the Copa del Rey in 2011. So that just shows. I mean, they City fans would have been extremely confident going into the game, but when you make a big change like that, for, for taking out Rodri and Fernandinho just brilliant in their role as the anchor in that team, letting De Bruyne and Gundogan roam further up the field. So it's 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 confusing really why he decided to do that. I think yeah, the it's the first time... Sorry, go on, Harry. You, oh, cheers. The thing is, you look at the last time before the Champions League final that they played Chelsea and they, they could have been 2-0 up if Aguero didn't do a little panenka and that day they did play one holding midfielder. So I'm looking at Pep and I'm thinking... You know, if that penalty goes in, would you play one or would you play zero in the final? I think it's really, it does change that much because when Aguero misses that penalty, momentum switches all the way to the other side. Whereas if you do play that one, rather than playing Gundogan, who's your top goal scorer, by the way, in the deepest position out of the three and playing Foden and Bernardo in the midfield in the centre, I just found that really, really strange. Yeah, and I, I think... think... Go on, Dave. Sorry, go on, Jared. <laughs> I, one thing I was just going to say is ever since it all went wrong for City in the final and this Fernandinho decision kind of weighed down on Pep, I think there's been a few suggestions that he has made that sort of experimental move in previous Champions League finals. But the fact is then he could rely on a player like Lionel Messi to kind of, you know, just, just pull them pull them out of any situation. And I suppose you maybe look to Kevin De Bruyne as City's closest, you know, City's best player, maybe. That, that That's questionable, I know, but he's still not on the level of Messi, is he? So I suppose that's kind of where it, where, where it went wrong. What would that's, you say? Dick? That's where the battle was, that's where the battle was won for Chelsea, really. Kante playing in that role and being brilliant, being in the, obviously the Claude Makalele role. Chelsea have been blessed with the midfielders like him and, in recent history and it's obviously that role playing in front of the defence being the anchor mopping everything up Kante is an expert at that and that's where I think the game was was won and lost go on Devin uh, all I was going to say is like like Harry alluded to as soon as you had uh, Gundogan in that defensive midfield role you're missing out his runs late runs into the area which when it meant like in October time where City looked a little bit vulnerable and it looked like um, it, it was quite tight at the top. That's what made the difference at that point. And then that's where City's runs just went. Um, but I think that, I think with Pep, he kind of relied on Zinchenko being that DM slash left back. And that's where he got caught out. If you, I think the average position showed that Chelsea exploited that straight away as soon as Zinchenko moved into midfield. Uh, Havertz, um, Kante and Werner all exploited that left-hand side and especially in that first uh, 20 minutes obviously Werner got through a couple of times and it really exposed it and obviously Havertz come th- it came from that side to get onto Mason Mount's ball where if you had a proper DM you'd probably expect Fernandinho or Rodri to at least have like been in that position to cut the pass out and then that never happens mm-hmm. um, We've already touched on Reese James's performance and how he kept Raheem Sterling very quiet 
Um, have I pronounced that correctly? I, I know I've, I've, I've been picked up <laughs> by you guys. <laughs> Raheem Sterling. Um, and he's had he's had a below par season. I think that's fair to say. I think even Sterling would admit that. Um, and looking ahead to this summer's tournament for England, who Sterling has been involved with for several years now, and I think he's a player Southgate trusts, after the season that he's had, and given the other options England have got, Harry, do you fear for his hopes of starting at this summer's tournament? I think because he's he's built up years and years of trust, I do think that gives him an extra push on the other players. But if, if Grealish impresses, you know, impressing the first friendly, and if he impresses in the second, because he's almost guaranteed to start that one as well, I would be I would be slightly worried if I was Sterling. But like I said, if Gareth if Gareth trusts certain players to get results done, Sterling is one of the players at the top of that list. So if I was him, I'd be I'd be I'd be slightly worried. But then again, I think he's you know he's in the guaranteed like fit list of fifteen to start. I think it, he might be on the bench for some games, but I definitely think on other games he will be straight in the team no matter what. And maybe England fans aren't a big fan of that. Maybe they do want. You know, someone like me also agrees with that. They do want Foden and Greenish. So, something a bit fresh, something new. Because you look at the Europa League final and the Champions League final, the two disappointing players, you could say, were both Rashford and Sterling. And those players were probably those that you'd expect to start or be very close to starting at the very least. So if I was an England fan, I'd certainly want more, you know, fresh, younger players, different players than what was shown in other tournaments like Foden and, and Grealish rather than that of Sterling. I think the thing last night was that, in parts, I did actually think to myself, we missed Sterling a little bit. When Trippier had the ball on the left and Kane had dropped, you'd like to see someone like Sterling running in behind to make that triangle, whereas you know Grealish, as good as he is, um, and this is not me badgering him at all, it's how he plays, is that he'd rather pick up the ball deep, drive inside. We just, I think the difference between him and Sterling is that Sterling would get into them areas for, well, you, you, with how deep Kane was, you'd expect him to be on the other, the, the guy receiving the back pass. And then obviously the right winger would have come, uh, dropped in. So I think um, Sterling's a bit probably like got our, a place in, yeah. A bit like how Son confidence Kane at Spurs, really. Because Kane, yeah. it's, uh, on a lot of occasions that, in that game, he was dropping deep to collect the ball as he likes to do and sprays passes about. And like you say, Sterling makes that run, I think. There was that Nations League game against Spain where he scored a goal where Kane picked up the ball deep and played it over the top to him and him and Rashford as well for a couple of goals. So it was good to see that sort of it'd be good to see that sort of link up, like you say. I think looking at the friendly yesterday, sorry to go all the way back to what we talked about at the start, but I think part of the reason why the attack looks relatively clunky or the game looks a bit clunky is because, yes, Kane was up front and we're used to that, but the two players playing off them in Grealish and Saka, you know, he's not used to those two players. He's used to Sterling playing with them. I think that that's what will give him the edge because they've been playing at England with each other for so many years even if Sterling's not on form if they complement each other better than someone that maybe is in form you're more likely to get results so I think that that's what Sterling or sorry that that's what Sterling will have in front of Grealish and other players that could play on the left I've seen some suggestions I think it was from the Man City's athletic correspondent that Pep Guardiola is keen on bringing in both Harry Kane and Jack Grealish this summer, two players who we've mentioned heavily just there. Um, and, you know, I just saw Sam's reaction to that. Oh. Just 
leave something for the rest of... leave something for the rest of them see <laughs> oh my and that's the thing with, with manchester city you can it would not be a surprise in any way if they forked out the cash to bring those players in but one thing i think we should consider is if these players are going to come in then surely players like i i'm thinking in my head raheem, raheem sterling bernardo silva <laughs> Sure, surely, surely you expect them to go out the door, don't you? Surely they can't all come in. They've already got too many options. Does that stop Pep? No, I, I'm, not saying, I'm not Pep. saying it's gonna it's gonna stop him. But I, I, sometimes I feel like Pep just gets a dart and picks his team like that, and it works. Because I mean, they, they're considerably stronger than 15 teams in that in the Premier League, and then the top the other four is just him out-thinking uh, them sometimes. And we said about overthinking, which is good. I mean, uh, we, we know what Pep, Pep does when he outthinks them, but it's when he overthinks. And uh, you'd, like to, you'd like to think that, you know, if anyone was to go out, you'd, you'd say, like, someone like uh, Riyad Mahrez might get moved on. And um, I'm trying to think of who I had someone in my mind now, and it's gone completely gone. But but Benjamin again, Mendy, even though he doesn't play on the wing, he doesn't get any starts. They, they've got so many sellable assets. That's great. I know they're, you know, Benjamin Mendy. They signed him for fifty. He might only be worth twenty now. But if you sign five, if you sell five twenty million pound players, that's a hundred million you've got straight in your bank that you can reinvest. Plus nice. their transfer budget already. You know, it's it's crazy, absolutely crazy. But like you said, so, so it will be, be back. It's yeah. just inevitable with the money that they can spend. That's the thing is, I don't think the amount that they can spend depends on the number that they sell, does it? They don't need to sell in order to be able to spend no. more, as they've proven. I mean, the amount, the amount that Pep's rotated this season, especially. Mm. And he's used all of them at some point. Before we move on to talk about the playoff finals, the three of them from last weekend, I just wanted to ask one more question on Manchester City. Um, this season, they've won two trophies, the Premier League and the League Cup, but... Sam, after this defeat in the Champions League final, would you constitute the 2020-21 season as a failure for Man City? I don't know about failure. I mean, we have talked about the Champions League and Manchester City a lot on this podcast and how much Pep's legacy at the club relies on it. And I think it does. Obviously, a lot of people are questioning whether he can win it without, as you mentioned earlier, Lionel Messi and his team. So you'll definitely be to get that far and to, to fall at the final hurdle or with a gamble of his not paying off. He'll definitely probably have a lot of blame laid at his door, but I don't know if I'd see it as a failure. I think that it's still been a, a very good season. Harry, what's your take on it? I think it's been disappointing, but above average. Yet, Like Sam said, I think going into the season, or at least going into the final, you're thinking... You know, we can get the, not the fake, people call it the fake treble, but it's still a treble at the end of the day. But I think any season that you win a Premier League trophy, and especially when you win it back off of someone, even though no one really challenged for it, winning it back, especially after the, the struggle that they had at the start of the season, what, they, were they at the top six in Christmas or barely in the top six at Christmas? And being able to do that, I think is it's still relatively impressive. So... I think it's been a, an above-average season for Manchester City because I think the Carabao Cup, that's just, we just give them that trophy every season because when was the last time they lost a game in that competition? 2016, 2017, somewhere around there. I don't so, know if I was alive. Yeah, like, yeah. 
So, like Sam said, it's it's not you know the end of the world. It's just it's just They've a good expectations. Season. Yeah, yeah, we'll go with that. They're just about met expectations. Devin, would would you agree with what the guys have said there? Yeah, I mean, they still won the Premier League after. Obviously, we were predicting people were predicting that Liverpool might become a force and be that that Man City over the next few years. Obviously, they've been unlucky with injuries and the the forty eight centre back partnerships and whatever. Um, but I think that that this was the closest chance he got to that Champions League. Obviously, they're in a final. That was very stupid comment. But um, just the, the overall, like even in the semi-finals and, and quarter-finals, you're thinking, you know what, this this could be cities to lose. And are they going to get that shot again? Maybe if if they do get the capture of of Kane and and maybe Grealish as well, then that takes them to a whole new level. But uh, we've seen it in the past. I mean, remember when uh, Liverpool lost the the final to Real Madrid? Um, and then came back stronger, um, and, and we've seen teams do that in the past. And maybe City could be that next uh, that next one where next season they'll use the frustration into that. Maybe take a hit on the Premier League and go full throttle into it, into the uh, Champions League. Um, the the only other thing in my mind that was, will Pep be there? Because if Pep sees this as too much of a failure for his own legacy, he might just walk and. And see, you know, like fancy a new challenge. You never know. Hmm. I think there's a, a level of success off the pitch as well. I think finding a world class centre back, you know, they spend 40 million on a centre back every season and it doesn't always come to success. You look at Ake, I know he's like the yeah. 15th choice. You look at Mangala a few seasons ago, but finding Diaz, that's a centre back that they've got for 10 years or they'll make massive profit on and they'll go to Real Madrid or Barcelona. And having a player like that, you know, that's that's the progress. I think they still win it without the league without him. I don't think because Laporte's been fit basically all season, the re-emergence, sorry, of Stones. But I think the transfer market this season has been, it's been good. I think it's been good for them rather than, I think Ake was a bit of a waste of money. But apart from that, I think finding Diaz ahead of other opposition as well, I think that's huge for the future. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Hopefully, I, I have to say, speaking as a neutral, I hope that Man City are given more of a challenge next year in terms of that league title. Because I think back to the year when it was them and Liverpool went down to the final day. And I think that was really entertaining to watch. And last year just really wasn't, was it? It's always anyway, harder to defend the title, it seems. So I imagine it'll, it will be more challenging. Yeah, very true. I think Chelsea will fancy their chances. Liverpool, maybe as well. Um, but who cares about that now? Because the Euros is on the way. Um, it's a future get... podcast. In a month's time, we'll, we'll think about that. It's, it's all about League One anyway next year. That's the <laughs> get, your, get your wall charts ready. I've, I've already plugged it once. Get get a wall chart because they're brilliant. Um, but enough about that. Um, it's time to think about the playoffs. Um, the Champions League final is... Probably the there's there's Devon's wall chart. Devon's ready. <laughs> don't put it. Obviously don't put not. It down, Devin. You won't let me put it anywhere in the room. So it's <laughs> just going to be under my bed. Um, yeah, the Champions League final might be the biggest game in may, maybe in world club football. Um, unless you're talking about the world club cup, world club, world cup. No, I don't. Club world cup. No. I don't think anyone <laughs> considers that. But. In English football, it's always billed as the most expensive game in English football is the championship playoff final. Um, that took place 
last Saturday between Brentford and Swansea. And I think it's safe to say playoff finals are they're supposed to be nervy, stressful affairs for any supporters whose club is involved in the final. Um, but I'm not sure last week's final could have been any easier for Brentford fans, to be honest. They beat Swansea 2-0 um, to join Norwich and Watford in next season's Premier League. Um, we haven't actually mentioned that Norwich were up on here before, actually. So that's a, that's a nice tick on that on the checklist. Um, but this isn't about Norwich. This is about Brentford. They were 2-0 up inside 20 minutes um, in last week's final. Ivan Tony with the first goal from the penalty spot and Emiliano with the second. Um, it was Brentford's 10th ever playoff campaign and they'd never been promoted via the playoffs before. So, Harry, it must be such a relief for them, particularly as this result sees them become a Premier League club for the first time. Oh, most certainly. I think looking in, going into the Premier League, I think look at their recruitment in the Championship. If they just level it up, I think they can be a serious contender for the top 12. I'm looking at other teams this season that struggled against relegation. I'm thinking the teams that are coming up, it's not going to be easy for anyone to stay up. I think Norwich have got better as long as they keep Wendy or at least re- reinvest that money well. I think I think Watford are very good. And I think Brentford, if they spend the money, I don't think they're going to be scared to spend money especially now they're going to keep Tony, or I think their chairman said that they're certainly going to keep Tony because they'll be in the Premier League. I think it's going to be a serious, serious challenge for teams. But like you said, it was quite a simple day at the office for Brentford. Swansea had zero shots on target. There was a couple chances for Ayu that just went back. And I think of the, the second half one when they're 2-0 down and he got in front of the defender, but it just the pelt went past the post. But yeah, it was, it was relatively simple. And I think the penalty on the, on the 10th minute mark just set the tone for the day, really. Sam, it's nearly a year since we spoke about Brentford losing in last season's playoff final. Um, But do you think the fact that this time around they got through the big day at Wembley with such composure, that shows you just how much they have improved over that last year, don't you think? Yeah, they've learned from their mistakes and it's always a a question around Brentford whether they can continue to replace that striker that they always seem to find. You've got Mopay Watkins... Now Tony has just been at a level up, really, obviously breaking Glenn Murray's record for most goals in a single championship season. He's obviously been key in players like Ethan Pinnock, Dalsgaard, the spine of that team. They've kept together for a while now and they've really grown together as a team. Obviously, Pontus Janssen leading the team as the captain as well. His, his leadership's been really good for them as well. So, yeah, it was, like I say, it was a very comfortable day. Tony obviously got off to a very quick start, if only that, that shot went in from, from range. That was a brilliant shot from him. <laughs> and he was just on fire once again and Swansea never really troubled. So, like Harry says, I'd fancy them to do a few things next season, maybe. Yeah, I think it it reminded me of the 2015 final when I can remember going to Wembley full of nerves for Middlesbrough against Norwich and that was a bit of a breeze for us as well I think we were two up inside 15 minutes and Middlesbrough didn't really lay a glove but as we said it says a lot about how Brentford have improved Devon looking ahead to next season is there anywhere you think they perhaps need to strengthen in order to survive or is it is it more about keeping hold of who they've got and Ivan Tony being the main person in that discussion as, as Harry alluded to, it's going to be interesting to see how the the money ball sort of tactic and in, in, in with the way that they get these players on board will work in the Premier League. And 
We've seen it in League One. It worked. Championship is obviously worked after a period of time. Of Are we going to see, I think the first couple of years, might if they are going down that route and the squad that they've got now currently, probably would rely on maybe one or two campaigns finishing 15th or 14th. I think Harry's stretch of top 12 is a little bit um, far, like two. I mean, it leads in it. So maybe uh, someone like Brentford would be up there, but you've just got to think about like the Ivan Tony's going to be the big one, whether he can replicate. He's done in League One, got even better in the Championship. It's about making that next step, which I probably would back him to score, uh, uh, get into double figures at least, because I think he's got that ma- maverick uh, mentality and he has got the ability to play in the Premier League. He can, he can win it in the air, he can do it on the floor and he can finish as well. And he's, he's got the pace as well to get in behind. So it just depends on, I think Thomas Frank's a big key as well, because um, I think there's been a few times, like the, the final was between two teams that started really well and then fizzled out very quickly. And I think Brentford managed to get themselves back into form just in time. Uh, that Bournemouth, you know, turning around that Bournemouth game is probably a big factor in that. But um, if Brentford experienced a drop-off in the Premier League like they did this year, because um, you'd expect them not to be as competitive or, or forefront, um, they could be worrying. It's, it's all about that strategy of, of you know, outthinking teams instead of um, outspending them. June 16th. Yeah. Oops, sorry. I was going to say, on, I think June 16th is a, is a massive date. That's when the Premier League fixtures get announced. And if they have, you know, a couple of relegation battle teams in the first few weeks, that could be a good thing or a bad thing. If they win those games, confidence is high against the rest of the season. If they lose those games, then it could be a bit worrying. But I, I'd back them to win. As not, not obviously not every game because no one's ever won every game in the Premier League. But what I meant by that is I think they'll be competitive in a lot of games. It'll be interesting to see how Tony does because, like you say, not every striker can make it, but I, I think Tony can certainly be one of those. But yeah, Brentford's they're going to be scary. And if Newcastle can get to 12, I think any team can get 12. Tony will need goal scoring support. I said it with Fulham when they came up last season with Mitrovic. Obviously, he got what was it 26, and obviously, he's done absolutely nothing this season. So, we don't like you say, it's it's hard to predict how Tony will do. So we'll need Brentford will need to bring in support on the wings, likely, or someone in midfield who can pop up with a few goals. I think Embuemo's good enough for Premier League level, but I'm not sure about Emiliano. Obviously, he scored in the final, but I think that was only his third goal of the season. So they'll need, I think, they'll need to bolster their goal-scoring options outside of Ivan Tony. Yeah, and even like the strength in, in midfield, is, is Jensen going to take that responsibility? Uh, Yanley, are they, are these going to be the players that, because I still think they're relatively unknown in the championship, even though we, we've talked, we talk about Brentford as a whole, but when we talk about individuals, it's always Tony or in Bueno. And um, I do like Mark Andes. I think he, he could be someone like, uh, not like Buendia before George winces at the prospect, but someone that plays in that hole. I think Sergio Canyos could be somebody that flourishes. But again, we only see it in bits and spurts. Um, and even, you know, like looking overall as a team, like David Ray as well, that's going to be a big one. Do they replace him? Because I know sometimes he's a little bit questionable, but he does make some good saves. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, this, it's how they use the summer of getting the underappreciated players from, from the likes of Belgium, Denmark, and how the scouting network has worked before. And 
You know, like we said, they've got players, you know, you look at the last few years, Saeed Ben Rama's in the Premier League, Esri Konsa, uh, Andre Gray's back in there, Mopai. They have got the players that have made that step up and they've looked convincing in the Premier League. So it, it, it we might just see these players naturally switch and they're in there. They know what they're doing. And the players that they bring in, it, it's going to be an interesting summer at least because I think out of the three promoted sides, I think Brentford's the one that I'd be most worried about going straight back down. David Raya was a, a player I was definitely going to mention, Devin. And, and that scenario reminds me a little bit of when Brighton went up about four years ago. And I think they had David Stockdale in goal throughout their championship season. And from the outside, he appeared to have a pretty good time of it. But Brighton made the assessment. They said, we need an upgrade on Stockdale after he got them promoted, been there a couple of years. He was out. Matt Ryan came in and it turned out to be a really good decision because Matt Ryan proved his credentials and he was really solid for them. And I think we've maybe touched on before about the strength of the goalkeepers in the Premier League. I think if if they were to go up with Raya, who, as you say, has had his moments where you think, is he up to it? Is he not? Um, I think that's an area they will be looking at. But they're difficult to come by, good goalkeepers, aren't they? Yeah, apart from one player that played in the opposite goal that made me look like a full on Saturday. But I think he could be someone that could go into Brentford next year on loan from Newcastle just, and yeah. only be permanent. But Just touching on Swansea, they're a bit of a crossroads now, really, because obviously Steve Cooper's done a good job getting him into the playoffs the last two seasons, but it's not certain they'll stay. He's been tied for the Crystal Palace job. You obviously got Woodman. Gahey, Horahan, who will all go back to their go back to their parent clubs after their loan spells this season. And they've all been crucial for them this season. Obviously, Andre Ayu, their top scorer, is not he probably won't stay either. I don't see him staying anyway. So there could be a lot of departures at Swansea. So it'll be a very important summer for them, I think. Yeah, I think Gahey, as you say, there has been really huge for them and their defensive solidity, as has Woodman and I think Gay is being admired by several Premier League clubs. So I would be very surprised if he went back to Swansea. But I think it has been touched on since the lineup was completed for the championship about how open the field will be next year. If they keep Steve Cooper, Devon, do you see them being one of the teams up there again next year? I'd, I'd, I'd maybe in in terms of playoffs, but you know, like how Brentford have adapted it season upon season and, and other teams are starting to to build a bit of momentum. It's going to be a good championship because there's, lit, there's, there's a lot of teams where you, you, you can't predict any sort of winner at the minute. It, it's kind of like, well, they're all right. I mean, we've seen play, you know, like QPRs and, and that made them late runs at the end. Um, <clears throat> are we going to see a similar season where... Because I think Swansea will have a massive drop off, like Sam said. That them th- those three lone players are absolutely crucial. I mean, like the, even the players that are still there, like Cabango's, if he has a decent Euros, he might be off to. Especially, and if Cooper does leave, I know you said about him, if he stays, but if he does leave, he's going to take some of that young talent with him. Um, and I think overall from Swansea, they've missed someone like Rian Brewster, who's been putting the goals in, and, and even like Ayu, I know he's. There were a few times where the pitchers came to him and he would tap in the bag saying he wants to stay. But, I mean, would I favour a move back to somewhere like Marseille? Probably. Mm-hmm. His contract expires, I think. I don't think he signed a new one. So, 
Is it? Uh, that, that's that's confirmation yeah. then. I'll do some yeah. research next week. It's <laughs> certainly hard to see how they keep him on. I, I think after the success of Norwich and Watford, after coming back down and going straight back up, I think you can probably assume that maybe Fulham and West Brom will be up there. Maybe Sheffield United too, given they've just brought Jukanovic in, who looks to be a good appointment. Um, but as Harry said there, I think we've got a couple more weeks to go until the fixtures are out and we can start to look ahead to that date. Another team who will be very excited for their fixtures to come out after they completed the championship lineup for next year is Blackpool. They won the League One playoff final on Sunday. Um, Sam, you covered this game for Vavil. What did you make of it? I know with your Grimsby connections, you must have been pretty happy with the result. But what, what did you make of the final as a whole? Yeah, it's very good. Uh, it got off to a, a blistering start, obviously, with that own goal in the very first minute from Turton. So, obviously, Black, Blackpool were on the back foot from minute one, but I think they responded extremely well to the to going behind so early, and they were the dominant team for most of the game, to be honest. They deserved to win. Obviously, an unlikely hero in Kenny Dougal, Dougal sorry, the defensive midfielder, who I think scored about two, girl, two goals in his career before this game, and he scored two brilliant goals in this final to send them through to the championship next season. They've obviously, Blackpool are obviously the kings of the playoffs. They've, I think they've been promoted six times now via the playoffs, which just shows how prolific they've been in these playoff campaigns. And they've had a hell of a ride these six years. What has it been since they've been out of the championship with obviously the Oyston family finally relinquishing control of the club. And they've got, you know, Blackpool fans have got their club back and they're on the up again. Yeah, and Neil Critchley, the man who people will probably recognise if, if you're not a regular watcher of League One from his um, Liverpool. Um, I, I'm trying to think what to say, but he, he represented Liverpool in the, was it the FA Cup last season? I think it was the FA Cup when Liverpool were away on Club World Cup duty. He came in with the youth team, did a pretty good job there. I think he got them through to the next round and now he's gone to Blackpool and done a very good job. Devon, do you, do you see him taking them from strength to strength next year in the Championship? It's going to be an interesting summer. I think not just because of the colours they play in, but they could be a little bit like Luton when they first came up. They've got a couple of good players in there, but overall the quality is probably not up to scratch just yet. Um, I think they'll be aided by some of the teams in the Championship performing below par you know you'd like to think you'd like to say that Derby might experience a bounce back and and um maybe Huddersfield might you know stitch some of them um the holes that they started to create towards the end of the season but if not they're going to be down there I think Luton now they've lost a couple of big players that they'll be down there as well it's it's all about um their business there's a lot of good free agents in there it depends on the budget that Blackpool have got like I'm not going to sit here and say yeah I know this and this is this is about Blackpool because whenever I think of Blackpool I always think of the when they went up to the Premier League so I'm expecting Gary Taylor Fletcher to come on and score a goal but, um the it, it, it's just the summer there's there's a lot of good players out there that if they're done well it, as, as long as they stay in that and keep that progression going fans are going to keep turning up I think fans are very much going to just be happy to have Oyston gone and they are reaping the rewards now. If they can carry that solidity into the into the championship next season, they obviously conceded the fewest goals in League One 
this season and hope that Jerry Yates can do it at championship level or bring in a couple more in, in the attacking in the attacking sense to help him with the goal side of things that so I think they can they can survive next season. Worth mentioning as well, joining the championship will be Peterborough and the winners of League One, Hull Harry, who last year we saw the collapse they had under Grant McCann in the second half of that season. They've stuck with McCann. He's got them back up. They're going to have a point to prove, aren't they? I mean, you'd have certainly thought so. I, no, obviously, they'll be without Bowen and Grzyski because they left two years ago. But being able to bounce straight back up, especially after such a disappointing fall, getting straight back up there. Peterborough haven't been there in, in quite a few seasons. So it'll be a really, really interesting championship season. But like Devon says, teams like Derby, they're not going to have another absolutely awful season or you, you certainly wouldn't expect them to. But teams that you wouldn't expect them to, might do so there's always going to be those you know surprise packages that might not have a great season and look at Wickham I know they got relegated till the final day so you can't rule anyone out of the championship because you'd have thought maybe five games ago Wickham would be on about 15 points they get battered every week but they didn't they, had a, they really showed in the second half of the season that they can fight with those sort of teams so look at Hull look at Peterborough look at Blackpool they could all do it every single one of them could can really put on a fight a positive factor is that then Blackpool fans should be back at Bloomfield Road for the next season. And, and you think they will be teams like, well, yeah, yeah, they, they're absolutely balmy. I mean, they, they, they are well supported around that area, even though it's an absolute terrible place around the area, but um, they, <laughs> they, they are well supported. And, you know, teams like maybe even Derby probably lacked some of that support and, especially Sheffield United in the Premier League, as soon as these players fans flood back in their numbers, it's going to be a different aspect now. We're actually recapturing some of the, the highlight highs of the game and, and what we've really missed this last year. It's nice to see for Blackpool because when they got promoted from League Two, obviously in the playoff final, the, the turnout for that game was, was not good. And that was when Oyston was still at the club, obviously. So it's nice to see them. Obviously now with Simon Sadler in chart at the top of the club, he's he's been a fan of the club and he knows what he's doing. So it's nice to see a club like Bat pull back where they belong. Yeah, apologies to any residents of the Bloomfield Road area there. Devon's views are his own and not not representative of that the the podcast. <laughs> I think I'm I'm pretty sure people from Blackpool would agree with with the area and the seafront. Yeah, it's you, iconic. You, Don't get me wrong, it is iconic. But yeah, you might be right. Moving on. Um, <laughs> finally, in, in the third playoff final, which was played on the bank holiday Monday, um, I think this was probably the cagiest of the three games, but also the most controversial. Um, the League Two playoff final between Morecambe and Newport. Um, it went into extra time. A penalty was given in extra time. Um, I'm, I'm going to say it before anyone else does. It's, it's an absolute disgrace that this game was decided on that. Um, Sam, it, it was Morecambe who were the beneficiaries of it. They won 1-0. It, it was a well-taken penalty, but it, it should never have been given, should it? No, probably not. But hey-ho, that's, I know it was Bobby Madley in charge. He's been a Premier League referee for a while, but that's sort of the standard of, that's the standard of refereeing in league two to be honest i mean you see those sort of decisions all the time it's obviously very very cruel on newport but i think Morecambe on the basis of the whole season i've been extremely impressed with them and the turnaround that 
Derek Adams has has well had at that club with Morecambe, who are probably relegation candidates and have been around the relegation zone in League Two for a long time. When he took over, I think they were in the relegation zone. So it shows how much he's done at that club. And players like Carlos Mendes Gomez and Cole Stockton have been brilliant this season for them. And I think although the way they won the game was probably unjust, I think they probably deserve to go up in the end for their performances throughout the season. Yeah, and I think that kind of showed through Derek Adams' interview at full-time as well. And it, he was all in the headlines in the build-up to the game, what with his... He didn't hold back, with... did he? <laughs> no, he didn't. But can you blame him, Devon, after all that Ellison has said in the media in previous weeks about him? You know, he had, he had the last laugh, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, when especially when it's at the time as well with what happened and then him going on radio, under the cosh, several podcasts, just absolutely slating Adams um, and how he left Morecambe, which, I mean, it were, I think a few fans, fans, a few journalists tweeted how good it was just to hear people booing, again, just that fan element. But um, I think that's one of the most exciting things about the final was going to be that little battle, but it was on a knife edge anyway um, through, throughout the match. Uh, but I think Adams has suffered a lot from Ellison, so it quite sometimes it's quite nice in a, in a story element where they do get that kind of revenge and justice. But um, I don't know where to go with this. It's did anyone, <laughs> did anyone see that photo of uh, Adams, Adams celebrating, celebrating right there? Yeah. He wasn't in front of Kevin Ellison. It, it was Ellison a bit was like here, definitely. It was a bit yeah. When when this the obviously the racism aspect between Suarez and uh, Evra were happening, and I think Man United beat Liverpool in the next game at Old Trafford, and um, there's just the corner where he, Suarez is walking down the tunnel and Evra's behind him, getting it like that to the corner, and it reminded me a little bit of that. Yeah, but you look at the game. I know Absolutely you different point. circumstances as well. Completely different circumstances. <laughs> But, Newport dominated for a lot of it, but if you don't score from 24 attempts, I'm sorry, but you've had enough chances. I know the penalty went against you, but if you don't score in 24 shots, you've, you've had enough chances. It just It's just one of those things. Every every season, teams have decisions that go against them, and just sadly for them, it was on the biggest day of their season. I mean, it, yeah. were, it, were, it weren't good for any Welsh side, were it? I mean, Swansea <laughs> lost, Newport lost, Cardiff were nowhere near and lost 5-0 to us. I thought I'd let, let, drop that in quickly. How have you uh, not got in this? And also, Wrexham as well, uh, <laughs> dropping out of the playoffs in the final day in the National League. is, is Welsh football's been a bit that. So hopefully that carries on into the Euros. It's been a hell of a journey for <laughs> Newport, to be fair, this season. The blistering start that they had and their pitch just absolutely falling apart towards the end of the season to the point where they literally could not play on it anymore. So they've been on a, a hell of a journey, especially with Mike Flynn in charge, all those cup runs that they've had. And I think they can, obviously it'll be very disheartening the way they lost the game, but they can be confident that they can go again next season, I think. Yeah, and we could maybe force this into a debate about VAR, but we're not going to do that. We've, <laughs> we've, spoke, we've spoken for long enough now, and we've spoken for long enough about VAR in previous episodes. So if you want more of that, then let us know. But the chances are you probably don't. Um, but we're going to round it up there, I think. We've rounded up all of the playoff finals and the playoffs in all three EFL divisions were all won by the team who 
finish the highest, finish the closest to the automatic spots. Maybe that's the way it should be. But I think the playoffs are always enjoyable and they threw up games like that one between Brentford and Bournemouth in the second leg, which was just... Newport Forest glory. Green. To what? Yeah, leg, that, that one too, Sam. What a game mental. that was. <laughs> um, but yeah, we've spoken about the playoffs. We've spoken about the Champions League. From our next episode, it is going to be Euro Central. As we said, I think the excitement is really starting to build now for the tournament. It's been such a while since the last one, of course. Hopefully, England can do it. Um, but having looked at the tournament tree and seeing that it looks like we're going to run into Group F at some point, maybe it'll be difficult to get to where Gareth Southgate wants to be. But who knows? Um, we've rambled on for long enough now. So we will see you next time with that one. Thank you very much. Follow us on Twitter. I haven't said that. Follow us on Twitter. See you later. Bye.